Bless you, man. Good morning. Welcome to Sovereign Grace. Let's uh, turn with me, please, to the book of Matthew, chapter 12. We'll be reading verses 38 through 42 today. But as you're turning, I want us to ponder something in this text and try to understand where we are in this wonderful gospel. And it begins with this question of what is truth. It's, it's, it's a question that is as old as questions themselves. What is truth? In our day and age, we are in a season where truth is whatever you want it to be. My truth is my truth, and your truth is your truth, and how dare you tell me that my truth is not true. Amen? Well, Scripture does tell us that God is all that is true, and He's good, and He's beautiful. It's the nature of truth that defines itself as God reveals Himself. That's truth. We're going to see this in today's text, what is true. And Matthew continues sharing with us here in this passage the interaction that Jesus had with these blasphemous Pharisees. After all the signs and the miracles that Jesus did in their presence, he, 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 they saw it. And after Jesus' harsh rebuttal of them for their stubborn and blasphemous hearts, these scribes and these Pharisees had the audacity to ask for a sign from Jesus to prove who he was. This is where we are today. As much as what Jesus has done to show exactly the truth of who he is, and even after his strong rebuke of these blasphemous Pharisees, they had the audacity to ask, no, not ask, demand a sign. That's what we're going to see today. They wanted to see a sign to prove to them that Jesus himself was not blasphemous that Jesus himself was not from Beelzebul. And how Jesus responds to these men, I think, reveals much about how Jesus is always Lord, even when more is demanded of him. He's going to show how much more in charge he is. So if you're able to stand, let's stand in reverence for the reading of God's word. And let's take a look at Matthew chapter 12 and continue reading beginning in verse 38. Then some of the scribes and the Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with his gen- this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Let's pray. Father God, we praise you this morning, this day, this Lord's day, the day we set aside as you command to rest and to worship and to praise you. Lord, today is a day that in our secular culture is a holiday of pagan origins and pagan intent. There is an emphasis on the occult and the demonic today. Yet, Lord, we're here today worshiping you. And I pray, God, that you would hear our song, that you would 
be pleased with our love and our adoration for you, that you would speak to us in your word, that you would remind us and show us more deeply and more intimately that who Jesus is, his authority and his power over all things. Lord, this is something that we often neglect and we often don't ponder correctly. And so I pray, God, that today in your word you would reveal to us your heart for your creation and for your people, and that you would be pleased with us as we listen. And I pray, God, that you would stir within our hearts a deeper love for your Son as we read these words together. Let this time be for you. Please speak to us now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Please have a seat. So Matthew's gospel continues here to share with us another interaction between Jesus and now we understand, as Jesus has called them, blasphemous Pharisees. Not just Pharisees, blasphemous Pharisees. It seems as if Matthew's intent for this chapter has always been to establish the lordship of our Savior. Remember, that's the common theme throughout chapter 12. Who is, who is the Lord? More, more, more particularly, Christ and His lordship revealed in relation to how people respond to Him. Not that His lordship is defined by how people respond to Him, but it is revealed by how people respond to Him. Notice the difference. It seems as if Matthew's intent is to establish Jesus as Lord and our Savior over all things. All things. There's nothing that Jesus is not Lord over. Would you agree? And we're going to see this here. But these Pharisees, here's what we're going to see. These Pharisees, they often demanded proof from Jesus to verify his claim of who he was. We saw this all throughout chapters 11 and 12. And particularly the last several weeks, we've seen more importantly what these Pharisees are up to. They wanted to verify who he was. They wanted to verify his claims. Now, to verify is to determine the truth. Veritas is the Latin word that means truth, to verify. So what these Pharisees are attempting to do is they're wanting, they're calling for verification. Jesus, show us who you truly are. And oh, Jesus is going to do more than that. He's going to reveal to them a truth beyond what they could imagine is true. So let's take a look here and see. Look here at verse 38. Then some of the scribes and the Pharisees answered him saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. We have to look at this request here in light of the events that transpired in the previous verses, verses 22 through 24. If you remember what happened in 22 through 24, Jesus cast out a demon from a man and healed his blindness and his inability to speak. And that started this whole interaction here between Jesus and these Pharisees. We have, to, we have to remember when we read verse 38, this is, the, this is the scene. The request for a sign here in verse 38 is less to do with justifying who Jesus was. It had been established already that Jesus was a great teacher. And even this question shows that because they call him teacher. Yet, let's stop and think about this. Even though it's already established who Jesus was through his actions and through his healings, what these pharisaical scribes wanted was justification for what Jesus did. Was it from heaven or was it from the devil, Beelzebul? So their request, 
They were asking for a sign from heaven. Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. Now, Matthew's account of this interaction, I think it shows us that sin is most manifest in how one responds to Jesus. We're seeing some sin here. It's what we're seeing. No matter what a person's outward life is like, no matter how pious and religious they are, the innate, the inner spiritual nature is always revealed. The true attitude toward God is seen with certainty as one's attitude toward Jesus Christ. What is your attitude toward Christ? That reveals the truth of what you think about our Lord. That's what we see here. And some people do not see Jesus as the true divine Son of God that He is. We clearly see that here. What is most troubling is that self-professed Christians, religious churchgoers, often do not see Jesus Christ for who He truly is either. Those Religious churchgoers who often do not see Jesus for who He truly is, they often wear their religion on their sleeves for all men to see. It's their testimony for their devotion to God. Despite religious and moral pretense, one's rejection of Christ proves one's hatred and rejection of God. And that's what we're seeing here. This idea of teacher, in verse 38, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. This is coming from this delegation of scribes. Now the scribes, they sometimes they were part of the Pharisee party and sometimes they were part of the Sadducee party. You know, even back then in religious tradition, there was political and theological doctrinal divisions. And so these scribes that are speaking here were part of the Pharisees. That's why I call them Pharisaical scribes. And they must have been charged here by a greater group to confront Jesus. In other words, they were saying, in other words, you can imagine how, how bullies get around and they say, they always pick a couple of people to go do the dirty work. You go and you confront Jesus. That's what I think is happening here. But they're sent with an, with the charge, you go confront Jesus and you go, you've got to humiliate him in the process. And so by acknowledging Jesus as teacher, I think, and maybe these teachers of the law themselves, that's what scribes were, they were teachers of the law. Maybe they were being sarcastic in calling Jesus teacher. I don't, I don't sense a level of respect here in their tone. Teacher, show us a sign. Almost like a taunt. By acknowledging him that they're, I think that they're trying to humiliate him. That's, that's their goal here. That's, that's the motive for their, their, their question. Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But this sign is not just any sign because clearly Jesus has been casting out demons. He's been healing people. They've witnessed this. This is what has stirred up the whole controversy to begin with. So what other sign do you want to see? So apparently whatever Jesus was doing still was not enough. You ever been there? Not enough. So these scribes are saying, well, teacher, show us a sign. Well, what kind of sign? <laughs> this request does not seem to be a polite question, but instead it's a, it's a direct imperative. If you know your grammar, the imperative is a command and, and, and a, it's, 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 a, it's a demand. Do it. Show us a sign now. That's, that's the tone that we read here. Jesus, show us a sign. So 
They, again, they don't want any, nor, just any sign because, again, Jesus has already been healing and, and doing mighty things. These men wanted an appropriate sign. Whatever Jesus has already revealed to them is not enough. They wanted an appropriate sign, something that proved the glory of God in His created order. Show us and prove to us, Jesus, that you are from heaven. That's the type of sign they're looking for. The sign might have been a mighty cosmological miracle like stopping the sun in the sky. Remember, we read about that in Joshua chapter 10. If you read that account in the book of Joshua, Joshua, by the power of God, commands the sun and the moon to stop in the sky. We see that in Joshua chapter 10. It's a historical record. You can look back in the ancient accounts, not just in the book of Joshua, but even the ancient literature of the Babylonians of that day have a record of this. There was a day in human history when the sun stopped. That's a cosmological miracle. That's the type of sign that I think that these these Pharisees were demanding. They wanted to see a sign of God's power. Like in Joshua, this sign of God's power was when Joshua and the uh, armies of Israel were in battle against the Amorites. And in order to overcome them, God grants this request of Joshua to stop all of the heavens. So Jesus had already proven his power through exorcisms and healings. But here's the thing. Even demons can imitate these types of miracles. Even demons can imitate exorcisms and even healings. They can, they can mimic But only the power from heaven, the power of God alone, could change the very order of the heavens, the very order of the cosmos. The cosmos is the idea of all of the created order, how God has established the heavens and how he's established the earth. Everything that is, is in a godly order. And the only one that can arrange that order is God himself. This is the type... Now, I think this is the type of sign they're looking for. Why do we see this? Because this is not the only time that these Pharisees and scribes demand this of Jesus. If you look over at Matthew 16, go ahead and flip over a couple of pages. This is an example of how Matthew's gospel will show us multiple things that are the same in Jesus's ministry. It's not that he's repeating one-time event. It's as if these events and these interactions that Jesus had happened all the time. So what we see in Matthew chapter 12 and Jesus being called out by these Pharisees about a sign from heaven, we see in Matthew 16 as well. There was another time recorded, again, so evidence that this type of request and these kind of interactions happened multiple times in Jesus' ministry. Matthew chapter 16, 1 through 4, the Pharisees and Sadducees ask another time, and they demand a sign. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees came to test him. They asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, when it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. Again, same type of interaction with Pharisees and Sadducees in Matthew 16 as we see in Matthew 12. 
They're demanding a sign, and we can infer a sign from heaven. And Jesus' reply is the same in both accounts. You adulterous and evil generation, no sign will be given to you. So that's like, can you just imagine the audacity of these men? Jesus, who has been healing many, many people, (laughs) who has been performing miracles everywhere he goes, teaching wonderful, amazing things. Yet these Pharisees say, okay, Jesus, eh, that's a good magic show. Show us a sign from heaven now. I mean, what we're seeing here is nothing different than what we do this day. When we come to Christ, we demand that Jesus do more than what He's already doing for our account. Don't we? We're guilty of the same thing. But we see here that these these Pharisees, I mean, certainly if Jesus is who He claims to be, especially the one who could judge blasphemy, that's what happened, what we saw in the previous text last week, he could change the stars in the skies, couldn't he? That's kind of where the, that's the challenge here. If, if you can condemn us for blasphemy, Jesus, and he really can, show us what you can do in, this, in the heavens. It's a challenge. That's what we're seeing here. But their intent here, and, and what is, this really proves their intent, that they intend to prove that Jesus could not do these. In other words, they're asking him a question, actually demanding that he do something that they feel he can't do, so therefore they're going to trap him. There's no way that Jesus, this humble carpenter from Nazareth, of all places, could change the heavens. Now we've got him. So their intent was to trap him. They know that he would never be able to do these miraculous things. Like, they may have even had in their mind uh, the book of Joel, the prophet Joel, chapter 2, verse 31, he turns the moon to blood. That type of a sign. Jesus would never be able to do that. He would never be able to paint a rainbow in the sky with a wave of his hand. So they want Jesus to fail here. They're trying to set him up to fail. They were testing him. But I think Jesus' answer points us even to greater to his divinity. When we see how he responds here in verse 39 and following, Jesus is pointing out to these hypocrites the signs that God has already placed in history. And the signs that God had already placed through the prophets and through the wisdom of Solomon. In other words, you're demanding something of me, folks. You're demanding more of me. I want to tell you what I've already done. Now he's compared. So let's look here at verse 39. But when he answered them, here's what he says, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Now I know... Next week, the ladies' Bible study is going to dive into the book of Jonah, a four-chapter little prophecy. Actually, more of a historical record of a prophet. There's a lot there. Jesus is pointing this out here, isn't he? He answered them and said, No sign will be given to this adulterous and evil generation except the sign of the prophet Jonah. What's he doing? I think Jesus is being very bold here in his reply. Number one, he, he, he ignores and denies their demand. I'm not doing it. No sign will be given you <laughs> except this one. He calls them you evil and adulterous generation. See, anyone who gets mad at biblical preaching because they would rather hear from the 
nice and compassionate Jesus doesn't, they just kind of overlook this, these words. I mean, I don't know about you, but if Jesus is calling you evil and adulterous, I don't think that's very sweet and very kind. I think he's being very truthful. Yet, people want the sweet Jesus. They don't want the truthful Jesus. And here he is. Here's what he's calling them. He's calling them evil and adulterous because the Old Testament prophets, they often spoke in terms of marriage. And they did so in regard to the relationship between God and his people. That's how they talked. This is why in Malachi chapter 2, it speaks of the adultery of a husband being the adultery against the Spirit of God. Every marriage, Christian or secular, is a witness to the Spirit of God in the union since marriage is an ordinance directly from God. Even non-Christian marriages still reflect this whether they realize it or not. Now I want to clarify marriage between a man and a woman. Marriage between a man and a man and a marriage between a woman and a woman do not reflect the Spirit of God. Here's why. Because in Malachi chapter 2, verse 15, it tells us that God seeks godly offspring from a godly marriage. How can a man and a man produce offspring, much less godly offspring? How can a woman and a woman produce offspring, much less godly offspring? So that redefining marriage in that count, that, that's clearly not of God. But all marriage Godly marriage and even secular marriage reflects this. So Jesus' rebuke here in Matthew 12, 39, you adulterous generation. You're committing adultery against the covenant that God has made with you. Again, marriage is a covenant, right? So Jesus' rebuke here in Matthew 12, 39 echoes the language of covenant as well. And so these scribes of the law were adulterous because they had breached the vows of the unique covenant relationship with God. A religious leader, especially these religious leaders, who would be faithful Jews who served God under the Mosaic Covenant, they should accept His Son, Jesus Christ, when He came because anyone who was rightly related to the Father could recognize the, the Son if they were in the right relationship. So if these scribes rightly knew the Father in heaven, they would need no sign from heaven to verify the Son. That's what Jesus is saying here. So when we look here at the end of verse 39, he says, No sign will be given. Jesus would neither give the sign that these scribes demanded of. It was not that he was unable to do so. Clearly, Jesus can do whatever he wants. He's divine as well as human. He could. But he's not going to, which again shows his authority. If he was, he, it's not that he was unable to do these cosmological signs, he surely was, but it's because such a sign from such an evil intent was totally contrary to God's nature. And it goes totally against God's preordained plan of salvation. How dare you, evil and adulterous generation, demand anything of me? <laughs> That's what he's saying. God is not in the business of bending himself to satisfy the whims of adulterous people. When I say adulterous people, I mean adulterous in ignoring and abandoning the vows of relationship to our God. That's the intent here. If you are adulterous toward God, God is in no business of bending his will to you. 
That's what he's saying here. Remember back in Matthew chapter 11, verse 16 and 17, Jesus was calling these Pharisees, these leaders of the law, adulterous people. They were, he called them fickle children as well. How many good parents and adults bend the will to a fickle and spoiled child? Same thing. God's not going to do that. So when we look here in verse 39 at the end, he says, no sign will be given except the sign of Jonah. Now, let's dig into this. Let's take a look here. What is the sign of Jonah? What is the sign that God has already given long ago? That's what Jesus is saying. You're demanding a sign now, but there's already been many signs that came before me. Let's take a look at this. When we look in Jonah chapter 1, if you want to turn there, you can, but I'm just going to walk us through some of this real quick. In the first chapter of Jonah, verse 17, it says, The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Remember, Jonah was called by God to go to the pagan country of Assyria, particularly to the capital city of Nineveh. Very wicked. And Jonah, being the reluctant prophet, said, No, Lord, I'm not doing it. Hmm. And we know what happened then. Anytime you tell God no, what does God do? Whatever He wants. And so here we go. Uh, many of us have had testimony of that, haven't we? Amen. And and so here we are in verse one, uh, chapter one, verse seventeen. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And then we know in Jonah chapter one, after many long, actually chapter two, after many long prayers in the belly of the fish. Many, I mean, those three days had to have felt like an eternity. Can you imagine being in the belly of a great whale, a fish? Not a whale, probably, probably a great fish of some kind. Some translations call this a sea monster. <laughs> We don't know what kind of fish it was. It was big, big enough to swallow a man, okay? Can you imagine being in the middle of a stomach for three days, crying out to the Lord? Can you imagine the burning of the acid in the stomach of this fish for three days? And you're crying out to the Lord in the midst of that agony. After that, now God allowed Jonah to get to that point. Matter of fact, God directed Jonah to get to that point. We read in chapter 2, verse 10, And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. That's the sign of Jonah. In the belly of the, way of the fish for three days and three nights, to the point that he finally, finally cries out to the Lord. And then God said, Okay, now we're ready. <laughs> Spits him out. That's the sign of Jonah. So why is, why is this the sign that Jesus is saying that these, these Pharisees, these sat, these scribes, what, what is it that they should see? What we see is that in the Old Testament, the prophets of the Old, they employed two kinds of prophecy concerning who, concerning who Jesus was. There's two major kinds that the Old Testament prophets use. One is called the verbal predicative, if you're taking notes. Verbal predicative. It's in which specific and detailed predictions are clearly stated in the prophecy. Here's some examples. Like, the Messiah would be born of a virgin. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. That's a, that's a verbal predicative. In other words, you look for a child born of a virgin, that's a, that's a direct sign of who the Christ will be. Or that he would be a descendant of David and rule with justice, like the prophet Jeremiah said in chapter 23, verse 5. Or that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem in Micah chapter 5, verse 2. Those are verbal predicatives. In other words, the words clearly point to who Christ is going to be. 
The second kind of prophecy in the Old Testament prophets is called the typified prophecy, where a type of picture of Christ is shown rather than a specific word describing Christ. In other words, a, a type of picture occurs rather than a literal, and this type of picture occurs in a literal and historical person or an historical event. The, way, the only way to clarify these typified prophecies are when the Gospels or the epistles of the apostles specifically connect Christ to these events. That's what we're seeing here. Jesus is saying the sign that this evil generation gets, the only one they get, is the typified prophecy of Jonah in the whale for three days and three nights, pointing to, and he tells us here, verse 30, uh, verse 39, no sign will be given it to except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Verse 40, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. That is a typified prophecy of Christ, a foreshadowing of his coming and what will be. And the only way we know this in the Old Testament is what is clarified in the Gospels and in the letters of the New Testament. Jesus is clarifying here in verse 40 of Matthew 12, okay, you saw what happened to Jonah. Let me connect that, connect the dots for you. The same is going to happen to me. That's what he's saying. That's the sign that you get. A picture of the burial of the Son of Man and the three days and three nights spent in the grave. Just as Jonah was buried in the depths of the sea, Jesus will be buried in the depths of the earth. And just as Jonah came out of the great fish after three days, Jesus comes out of the grave after three days. Jonah's submersion in the belly of the fish or the sea monster was a literal event that typified Jesus' literal burial and literal resurrection. That's what he's pointing to. That's the sign that you get evil and adulterous generation. It's already been shown to you. That's all you get. So this was a verified historical event of a prophecy for Christ. Again, verification points to truth. This was verification enough for anyone who knew the Scriptures as Jesus explains them here. Clearly, these scribes would have known the account of Jonah. You would hope. And Jesus says, okay, you wise scribes of the law and the prophets and the wisdom books, let me tell you what was already there. The sign's been here all along. The signs of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection would be the greatest sign of God's covenant fulfilled. A greater sign than what these scribes demanded here. That's what Jesus is saying. You want a sign? Let me give you a bigger one. Remember what happened to Jonah? Same thing's going to happen to the Son of Man. That's a bigger sign than you even hoped you would get. Now let's look here at verse 41. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. If you underline anything in your Bible, underline that in verse 41, something greater than Jonah is here, and then we're going to get to 42 here, something greater than Solomon is here. Underline those two lines. Judgment from the pagans is going to show you that something greater is before you. 
Jesus continues his illustration here, verse 41, the illustration of Jonah, and he contrasts the repentance of the pagan Ninevites who heard the truth and repented against the prideful arrogance of the scribes. Despite Jonah's reluctance, remember Jonah was reluctant to follow God's command. Jonah didn't want to preach. But when the prophet finally arrived in Nineveh and he began to preach in the city, the results were miraculous. God can even use a rebellious prophet. That shows you the true where the truth comes from, right? But the rebellious prophet had to get to a place of humility and then accurately preach what God told him to preach in order for that to be. So don't say that anyone who claims to be a prophet God can use. That's not necessarily what I said. That's not what I said. What we see here in the Jonah narrative is that Jonah, the reluctant prophet, had to be humbled before he could be used. Yet then he was, even, even when he was used, he was still reluctant. Can you imagine living in the belly of a fish for three days and three nights being vomited out and you're still air, and you're still angry at having to do what God tells you to do? Can you imagine? We all do it. Yet God still used him. But you see, even there, the Spirit of God moved in the evil hearts of the Ninevites to repentance. We saw that in Jonah chapter 3. The men of Nineveh, that's what we see here in Matthew 12, 41. The men of Nineveh that Jesus refers to were not only Gentiles, but they were pagan. And they were vile Gentiles separated from God's covenant. Israel had a chosen covenant. Yet Jesus is saying these pagans who had no covenant with God will judge you. They're going to condemn you at the day of judgment. They, the, the, these Ninevites, these pagans, they knew nothing of God's wills or his ways, yet their repentance, when they heard Jonah's preaching, shows how hope overpowers judgment. You see that? Hope. That's the sign that Jesus is pointing to here. But look at this. In contrast here, these, these scribes, they... They were, they were from the nation of Israel. They, they were part of the chosen covenant people of God. The pagan Ninevites were outside of God's covenant, yet they repented. These chosen people of God in Israel, they were privileged. That's part of the covenant. God made a covenant with them. He privileged them. They protected them, and, and they were special to God. Yet these arrogant covenant people of God would not repent and turn from their sin, even when God's own son stood before them. That's what Jesus is pointing out here. These Ninevites who were pagan and outside of the covenant, they repented. <laughs> but you arrogant people, you won't repent even if with the Son of God standing in front of you. And he says here at the end of verse 41, something greater than Jonah is here. And Jesus is further clarifying who he is here. Jesus is further establishing his lordship over all things. And over all people, something greater than Jonah is here. Perhaps these Pharisees, they were jealous of Jesus, just as Jonah, I think, was jealous of the pagans in Nineveh. I think we see that. Jesus offered God's gracious forgiveness and eternal life with him in heaven, yet, yet God's own chosen and blessed people turned their backs on him. And because of this rejection, they would stand under condemnation by the former pagans who turned to redemption in Christ, even though they did not know or see Christ. 
the Ninevites, they embraced the hope of the coming Messiah, even though they didn't know who the Messiah would be, because the preaching of Jonah pointed to the covenant promise of God that he would redeem all people. They believed in Jesus, and even though they didn't know who he was because he wasn't born yet, yet here these these, these, not pagan, these covenant people of God who were arrogant had, had Jesus standing right in front of them and they missed it. That's what Jesus is saying. Verse 42. Now there's a second illustration here. We're going to move through this one a little bit quicker. Now Jesus, he, he talks about jo- the sign of Jonah, but then he, he, he kind of tidies this Rebuttal back up with verse 42. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. So basically what Jesus is doing here, he's giving them two examples. One from the prophets, Jonah. Now he's going to give them an, uh, another example, a sign from the wisdom literature. Another historical event dealing with the wisdom of God. The queen of the ancient Sheba was often called the queen of the south because her country, here's where she was from. She was from Lower Arabia, about 1,200 miles from Jerusalem, and she came from what is the ancient kingdom of Saba, and we know that this is part of modern-day Yemen. I'm trying to give you a little bit of geography here. At the bottom of of the... um, of, of Arabia, you have a little strip there of Yemen, and this is where she was from. And these people were prosperous in trade, and they had lucrative trade routes to India of the day. That's why this queen had so much wealth. And this wealthy queen, a Gentile, a woman, a pagan, an Arab of all people, came to Jerusalem to visit Solomon, the great wise king. Her intent was to learn God's wisdom from Solomon, who was the wisest of all men, wisest of all history. We read about this in 1 Kings chapter 10. If you want to flip there, you can. I'm just going to point out a couple of verses here. But in 1 Kings chapter 10, this is the account of the Queen of Sheba coming to Solomon. Particularly in verses 6 and 7 of chapter 10, it tells us how the Queen of Sheba received Solomon's wisdom. Listen to this. And she said to the king, the report was true that I heard in my own land of your words and of your wisdom, but I did not believe the reports until I came and my own eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told to me. Your wisdom and prosperity surpass the report that I heard. That is the queen of Sheba sitting at the feet of Solomon saying, I had heard great reports, but oh, I'm here in person And oh, how much grander is the wisdom of God than I ever imagined it would be. And her testimony here reveals what the wisdom of Solomon produced in his people. It was what convinced this queen of the value of God's wisdom. She she craved the value of God's wisdom because she had heard the stories of Solomon. And when she traveled those 1,200 miles and she sat at the feet of Solomon... And she witnessed his court. That revealed to her how grand God's wisdom was. Here's what she says in verses 8 and 9 of 1 Kings chapter 10. Happy are your men. Happy are your servants 
who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom, blessed by the Lord your God, who is delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel. Now, what is Jesus pointing out here in verse 42? Jesus makes a comparison between that pagan woman, the queen of the south, with a blind arrogance of the religious elite that he's talking to. Here is this pagan queen of the south who was humbled and desired the wisdom of God. She traveled far to see it. Yet here I am standing in front of you and you're blind to me. You see what Jesus is pointing out here? He says in Matthew 12, 42, that this pagan woman sat at the feet of Solomon to glean God's wisdom. Yet when someone greater than Solomon stands in front of them, in front of these scribes, and it is obvious that he is this God, that he is God himself, they refuse to see it. Yet they're demanding a further sign. You see the point? How dare you ask me for more sign? How dare you command that I give you more sign when it's obvious I'm in front of you? The truth will reveal itself about who Jesus is and the truth of God's mercy and forgiveness will reveal itself. That's what Jesus is saying. So closing this up, wrapping this up, when we look here what Jesus is doing here, He's He he is the something greater. He is the something greater than what these Pharisees demanded that they show Him, that He show them. You want a sign of the heavens? I am greater than any sign from the heavens. I'm greater than that. God reveals Himself in ways that the humble are going to see. Like Jonah in the belly of a whale. Like the Queen of Sheba traveling thousands of miles to go and hear God's wisdom. The humble will see God in that. It's the prideful and the arrogant that blind themselves to God's presence and God's wisdom. The only sign necessary for seeing who Jesus truly is, is the sign of God's self-revelation in His creation, in His history with humanity, and His history with the chosen people of God, Israel. That's enough. Even the words spoken through the prophets and the history with pagans and Gentiles who themselves humbled themselves before God when the Jewish religious elite would not. That's the thing to see here. Jesus will give no sign to those who do not see the truth that stands right in front of them. It's already there. So if you're here listening to this and you do not know Jesus Christ at all, if you're listening to... We're recording this now. If you're hearing these words now as you're listening... And you say, I don't see Jesus. I don't see why he's so important. Then I ask you to really be aware and listen to what Jesus is saying. It's evident in everything, everywhere who God is. He has already shown it to us. He's shown us his grace and his mercy through his creation. He's shown us his grace and his mercy through how he interacts with all of humanity. And we have a record of that in this wonderful book. God reveals Himself to us through the history that He has with His people Israel and the history that He's had even with pagans. That's enough. So anyone who is waiting for another sign 
or, or worse yet, anyone who is demanding another sign. You ever, you ever interact with somebody who had questions about Christianity? Well, yeah, that sounds good, but I'm just, I, he needs to show me more. You ever heard that response? It's what's happening here. Jesus will give no sign to those who are so blind that they can't see what's in front of them. But Jesus will, He will give Himself to those who see clearly who He is and are humble before Him and they see what He offers. Folks, when we, when we leave here, as we, I want to close with this. We have to be able to see the truth of who Christ is. We have to see the truth of who God is. And this hymn that we sang today, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. I want to read this one verse today of all days. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear for God has willed His truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. Of all days to be thinking of that, as these evil and adulterous Pharisees tried to crush Christ, one simple word, a simple response, crushed the evil intent. And today of all days, October 31st, we know what today is. Our culture celebrates evil today. Our culture celebrates the demonic today. Yet we know the truth, don't we? We do. The truth of Christ, the truth of God Himself, will crush any attempt by Satan to crush God. But what we see here is that when evil and adulterous men try to crush Christ, He shows us it ain't going to happen. Something greater is here, folks. And who is that? Jesus Christ Himself. Let me close in prayer. Father God Almighty, we love You. And Your Word is true. And no matter how vile and evil men are, when they come against Christ, when they demand more signs of your Son, He stands firm and says, no sign will be given you that you demand. The only sign given is what I give. And here it is. And so, God, those of us who are here listening to your word today, I pray that you would challenge us and stir us to hear the truth of your word, to worship your Son as he is rightly worshipped, to see him as the authority and the Lord that he is and the loving and compassionate Savior that he is. Lord, we stand before you in awe as you stand against evil and vile things. Not with aggression, but with firmness, with wisdom and truth. That is how we stand against evil attempts to crush the Word. So God, I pray that you would love us today. 
that You would speak to us today. Lord, that You would even use us in this fallen world today to be the light that this dark world needs to see. Use us, Lord, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.